temptation of our Savior, the temptation of Jesus out in the wilderness. And so we look at Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Let's hear these familiar words together. It says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on, the, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until the opportune time. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. A cosmic battle. A cosmic battle. Well, as you look back through the pages of human history, it seems that, that in every era... There are battles, there are confrontations, conflicts uh, that, that seem to kind of stand the test of time, that, that seem to, to fascinate us. You know, you just think about our own country's history. Uh, you think about the Civil War, you think about the way that, that people still talk about those battles, especially in our area today, the way people reenact those battles. Uh, you think about the industry that has been built on, uh, on Vietnam War movies, on World War I, World War II movies, and we all enjoy watching those movies. Uh, on a, a lot less significant scale, you think of the way we romanticize, like the Western standoff, right, with Wyatt Earp or Billy the Kid. You know, we all, us men especially, like to, to watch those movies. Uh, and even sporting events, right? We, we take these great kind of confrontations in sporting events and we name them. So we have the Thrilla in Manila. We, we have uh, the Rumble in the Jungle, right? Great boxing matches in history. And even in our Bibles, it's the conflicts that often become our favorite stories. You know, we think about David and Goliath that, that we learned as a child. And that's the ones that, that stick with us. Uh, we think about Elijah and the prophet of Baal, and I've told you uh, before how much I love that story. Uh, even Israel, as they enter into Canaan, with whether it's Jericho, with all of those battles they fight along the way, those are the ones, that, the stories that tend to stand out to us. There, there's something about this idea of two great forces coming up against one another, whether it's armies, whether it's individuals, whoever it is, uh, that, that really seems to, to grab and to hold our attention. Well, here, here in our passage today, I would suggest to you that, that we are confronted by the beginnings of a battle the likes of which the, the world has never seen. Here, uh, it, it is a battle that is waged not simply at an earthly level, a temporal level, but this is one that is waged on a cosmic scene, right? 
uh, it has eternal significance. It's a battle that, that pits the eternal Son of God versus the Father of lies. It's the ultimate good versus evil. And the results, that they, they will determine not only the course of nations, not only the course of men, but they will determine the destiny of our very souls. And so this, this is a battle for the ages. And look, in one sense, we know that this is a battle that, that has been going on since the garden, right? This is a battle that has gone on from, from the beginning. Uh, ever since God pronounced that curse, there will be enmity between you, uh, the seed of the serpent, and the seed of the woman. And, and as we've seen that play out over the course of the Old Testament, even now we see it play out. We see it, we see it in Jacob. Uh, We see it in Esau. We see it in Abraham. We see it all the way through history. But I would, again, suggest to you that here it takes on, at least for Satan, a whole new significance, right? As Jesus begins his public ministry, as he sets out to do the work of redemption that God has given him to do, uh, Satan's efforts, they, they intensify, You know, it's hard to know exactly what Satan really knows about Jesus at this point, but we can be sure that that he has seen the heavenly host singing, right? Uh, We can be sure that he has seen the the ministry of John the Baptist. And we can be sure that he was there when the voice spoke from heaven and said, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And so here at the beginning, uh, Satan wants to stop things before they can really get started. He wants to bring all of his lies, all of his scheming to bear against Jesus so that he can stop this work of redemption before it ever really gets off the ground. Now, it's important that that we start there. It's really important for us that, that throughout our study today that we keep that bigger picture in mind. The, the temptation, I think, or at least for me, when we come to this passage, this idea of Jesus' temptation is to take it and to immediately apply it to our own lives. And look, that's not, that's not a bad thing, and we're going to do that today. If Jesus is our example, and he is, if he's the one that the Holy Spirit is transforming us into, and he is, then it's right to learn from him. We need to do that, especially here at Temptation. Friends, we cannot forget at any point that what we see here in lots of ways is unique. This is not simply just a good example for us. This is Christ working out redemption for us. Like last week when he was baptized, when he identified with his people, when he took the place of his people, this is him doing that once again. This is him identifying with us in our temptations. This is him out in the wilderness, right, like that Exodus generation for 40 years. This is, in a sense, Jesus in the garden, like Adam and Eve, facing those temptations, doing what the first Adam could not do, resisting the the efforts of of Satan. Not giving in to temptation, not taking the, the easy way out. He submits to the Father's plan over and over. What we fail to do here, Jesus does. And this, as we read in Hebrews 5, this is is what he learned. This makes him that, that perfect sacrifice for us. 
And so, again, there's a sense where we come to this passage and we should simply read it and rejoice. We should simply read it and fall down and worship. Because what this is, is our Savior working redemption for us. Again, this is the eternal Son of God. These are real temptations. And that's important for us to to get behind us at the beginning too, right? We think, this is Jesus. These temptations were easy for him. We have to remember that he had a human nature. And so these temptations were real. He struggled with them just like we do, right? Now, obviously, he resisted them, but, but he felt what we feel at temptation here. But again, he, he is obedient. And why, why is he obedient? Well, I feel like we have read these passages uh, a lot of times over the last few months, but we're going to read them again. So if you turn to Hebrews chapter 2, you remember these words. Hebrews chapter 2, and starting in verse 14. Uh, Actually, in verse 16, it says, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And then if you turn over to to Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 14. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Here, again, Jesus goes to the wilderness. He is tempted, as we are, so that he might make propitiation for our sins, so that he might be a faithful high priest. And wonders of wonders, the the, the greatest thing of all, so that we might go to him and he might be able to sympathize with us. You know, the, the, the wonderful thing about Christianity is when we go to our Savior, we find one who understands us, who can sympathize with our weakness, who can say, yes, I know what that's like. Uh, And so, again, all of that is on display here. And so we've got to keep that bigger picture in mind. We've got to remember that that this is more than simply an example for us. Now, having said all of that, that the battle that Jesus faces here is one that we do face every day, right? It's one that we encounter almost every moment of our lives Satan and our sinful hearts, they are constantly tempting us uh, to to sin, to take matters into our own hands, to do things our way. And so if there is something for us to learn here, uh, we need to do that. And so keeping that bigger picture in mind, I also want us to think about our own temptations. I want us to think about how we should handle those temptations. Now, there's three main characters in this story, as you know. There's the Holy Spirit, there's Satan, and then, of course, there's Christ. And we're going to use those three characters kind of as our points as we move through this. And so let's do that together. The first thing I want you to see here is the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit. Now, last week we saw the, the, the Spirit descend on Jesus like a dove in bodily form. And so we're not surprised there in verse 1 when Luke tells us that Jesus was full of the Spirit. That's what we expect 
But what he says next, I think it does surprise us. It says that he was full of the Spirit and that the Spirit led him out into the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. Now we have to be careful here because James 1.13 is clear that God, he never tempts anyone to sin. You know, it's not, it's not God that, that brings the temptation to us in the sense that he is the one tempting us, right? But what we see here is that while God doesn't tempt us, he also doesn't always keep us from those places where we will be tempted, right? In fact, it seems here that God leads Jesus out into the wilderness for that very purpose, to be tempted. Now, for honest, even saying that, that coming out of my mouth this now kind of gives me like, ooh, I don't know if I, don't know if I should have said that, right? It kind of puts us on edge a little bit. Why would a good and holy, all-perfect God lead his people to the wilderness? Why would he lead us to those places where, where we might be tempted? We, we prayed it, right, in the Lord's Prayer this morning. Lord, keep us from temptation, right? Deliver us from evil. So why, why does he do these things? Well, I think there's, there's a lot of biblical answers, but there's three that, that really stood out to me. First, and you see this throughout Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, but, but God sends his people into, into these areas where they might be tempted to, to build character, right? To, to test our faith. Now, the greatest example of this is Abraham and Isaac, right? He says, here, take this son and sacrifice him. Now, that's the, the greatest uh, thing that, that God could send him to do. That's an amazing thing. And the, and the temptation there would be, God... I can't do this. The temptation would be to question God's goodness, question his, his ability to deliver. And we know that, that Abraham doesn't do that. Uh, but God does the same for us. He sends us into these places to, to test our faith, to refine our faith, as James says, to build us up so that we will be strong when the time of testing comes. Secondly, I think the Bible shows us that, that God sends us to these places so that we can learn those areas in our lives where we really struggle, right? You know, he doesn't give us temptations most of the time that, that are, are easy for us. Uh, temptations are hard, right? And so it shows us the places where we're tempted to make idols in our lives, those places that, that we really need to, to work on. Um, again, this is, this is difficult to speak in these terms of Jesus. We don't normally think of him in this way. And obviously, he, he had no idols uh, that, that he had to deal with because he was sinless. But, but think about the ways that Satan tempts him here. He tempts him, I'm going to show you, in three ways. With, with provision, to question God's provision. To, he tempts him with power. And then he tempts him to, to presume on God's goodness. And while Jesus resists all of those, as we look through at his ministry, at his earthly life, all of those were areas that he would have been tempted to sin, right? God, do you really care about me? Are you really, especially as we go to the end of his life, right, at the garden, God, do you really care about these things that are happening to me? Are you really going to serve, are you really going to deliver me from this? And so God is preparing him now at the beginning. He's showing him uh, those areas that are going to be areas of difficulty. If you turn over to, to 2 Corinthians 12, Paul gives us a, a great example of this. And you know this passage because it's one that, that kind of fascinates us. 
It's one that causes us to kind of scratch our head a little bit. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, and in verse uh, 6, 6 and 7, it says, Though I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So, to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Now, we we struggle with what this thorn in the flesh was for Paul, and it doesn't really matter, because the point is, is what does it do for him? Well, it keeps him from becoming conceited. It shows him that, that place where he would struggle, where he might be tempted to say, look at me, look at what I've done. And so God has given him this thing to, to make him humble, to, to make him look to the Father. And that leads us to our third point, the, the third reason why I think God leads us into these areas of temptation. And this is the most important one. And really all of the other ones can be summed up under this. See, he leads us there so that we can learn to live independence, Right? You know, our temptation always is like Paul, uh, is to, to be conceited, is to look at ourselves and say, hey, I can do this myself. I, I, can, I can do this on my own. And so he shows us those areas. He brings temptations into our lives so that we will learn to live independence. Again, in that 2 Corinthians passage, should have kept my finger in it. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And in verse, if you keep reading on there in verse 9, uh, starting in verse 8, it says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. And then in verse 9, but he said to me, what? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God has given him this thorn to show him that, that, my, that his power is enough. That he doesn't have to lean on himself. That he doesn't have to look to, to his own ability but that he should and he can lean on the sufficiency of Christ. And so as we face these temptations, the point is not simply to, to kind of trick us, not simply to test us, even though that's part of it, not tricking, but the testing. The point is to teach us to live as God has called us to live, to fully lean on the Holy Spirit. And that's what Jesus does. That's the significance of what Luke tells us there at the beginning in chapter 4, is that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. You know, at every moment, not only was the, the Holy Spirit leading him out, but the Holy Spirit was also upholding him. That The Holy Spirit was also giving him strength, power, the words, the ability to fight this good fight. It was the Holy Spirit that Jesus depended on at every moment. Again, that same Holy Spirit that is in Jesus here, that descends on him in bodily form, the same Holy Spirit that's at Pentecost, is the same Holy Spirit that is in you and that is in me if we are resting in Christ. And so why would we look to our own abilities? Why would we look to our own strengths when surely we know from experience that they're going to fail us? We can lean on the strength of God. We can lean on the strength of the Spirit. When we are in the wilderness, when he, leans us, when he leads us there, we can know that, that he doesn't leave us there alone, but, but that he 
walks with us. And again, we think about Paul's words, this time in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10 and in verse 13. He says, no temptation has overcome you that is not common to man, but God is faithful. Again, he is with us. God is there. The Spirit walks with us. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. Again, this doesn't mean that he's not going to overwhelm our strength. Often he does. But he is going to walk with us. He's going to give us the way to get out. And so we don't have to lean on our own strength. We can lean on the strength of the Holy Spirit. And so we see here, the Holy Spirit leads. He leads us to the wilderness. Sometimes he leads us into those places where we're going to be tempted. But he also sustains us. He upholds us. He gives us the strength we need to fight the good fight. Secondly, we notice the work of Satan here. We know the work of Satan. Now, immediately, you know, we're, we're confronted by those methods that, that he has used really from the beginning, right? You know, we're going to see in just a second that Satan is not an original worker, that, that he uses the same things over and over and over again. And that may say more about us than it does about him. They say that, that those methods have continued to work all of, the, all of this time, uh, but, but we see those methods on display here. When does he come to Jesus? Is it when he's at his best? Is it when he's at his strongest? Is it, is it when he is spiritually ready to go? No, he comes to him when he's been out in the wilderness for 40 days. He's tired. He's hungry. He's been fasting. He's been praying. He's probably spiritually spent to some degree. And then Satan shows up. Now, there's a, there's a lot of, in that for us. Because generally, it's when we are weak that the, those temptations come to us, right? Lots of times, it's when we're at our lowest point that, that Satan jumps on us. And he is that line. He's always prowling around. He's looking to, to jump on us. And he does that to Jesus here. And I, I want you to see the, the, the specific temptations that he brings. First, there in verse 3, he says, If you are the Son of God, Jesus is, is hungry, he's been fasting for 40 days. If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, this is a temptation of provision, it's a temptation of, of humility. Will Jesus depend on God to provide for him? Will Jesus submit to the will of the Father? And so on the one hand, Satan is saying, if you really are the Son of God, if you really are who the Holy Spirit said you were when he came down and he descended on you, then why are you out here suffering? Why are you hungry? Why don't you do something about it? Well, why don't you change your circumstances? Why don't you, why don't you turn this stone into bread? Show me your power. Then on the other hand, I think the temptation really goes deeper than that. Satan's really saying, if you are the son of God, then where's your father? Right? Where, where is he? Why is he leaving you out here to suffer? Why has he left you in these circumstances? Why hasn't he provided something else for you? Why would he want you to have to go through these things? Doesn't, doesn't he care enough to do something? 
Again, we're jumping ahead here, but, but that's certainly, certainly the, the temptations he brings to Jesus in the garden, right? As Jesus gets ready to go to the cross, surely Satan says to him, if your father cared about you, why would he make you go through this? Why, why would he make you endure what surely is to come? And that's the same argument that, that he uses against us today. He, he wants us to question God's provision. Does, does Jesus really care? Does the, why, why would he leave you in these difficult circumstances if he really does? Why don't you just take matters into your own hands? Why don't you do things your way? You don't have to follow God here. He obviously doesn't care. Go do things your own way. Satan would have us at every moment to question God's goodness, to question his provision, his care for us, whether he really can provide the things that we need. So we see him do that to Jesus here. Secondly, the second temptation, it's one of power. It's one of false worship. He takes Jesus up to the heights and he shows him the kingdoms of the world. And he says, all of this could be yours. And the thing that, that he leaves out, but that's implied there, is it can be yours without the suffering. It can be yours without all of this stuff that you're going to have to go through. As one commentator puts it, he, he is showing him the crown without the cross. Right? He said, all of this can be yours. And all you have to do is bow down and worship me. You can rule it all if you'll worship me. Now look, we all know this temptation, whether we want to admit it or not. Satan doesn't show us kingdoms per se. What does he show us? He shows us comfort and wealth, popularity. He shows us those things that our hearts desire. And he says, all of those things can be yours. All of those things that look like salvation, they can be yours. And what he asks us to do is not necessarily to bow down and worship him, because none of us would actually do that, I don't think. But what does he say? He says, no, you don't have to bow down and worship me. Just bow down and worship those things. He's content, as long as we're not worshiping God, he's content to let us worship the idols of popularity and wealth and comfort. He shows us these things and he says, they can be yours. All you have to do is worship them. So he tempts us. He tempts us with power. He tempts us with false worship. Third temptation, there in verse 9. He takes him to the top of the temple. He says, throw yourself off. It's a, a temptation of presumption, to presume on God's goodness, on God's ability to, to save and to, and to deliver. And notice here that, that Satan, he uses God's word, right? He knows God's word, and he knows how to twist it. He knows how to take it and use it in a way that, that will benefit his purposes. And so he says, look, the, the word says that you have angels at your command, that they will come and catch you. That God won't even let your foot be, be hit, hit against a stone, right? He, he's going to take care of you. So look, go up there and show who you are. Go up there and throw yourself off. Let these angels catch you. Presume on what God has said. Again, how often do we do the same? How often are we tempted to presume on his patience, on his kindness, on his mercy, on his forgiveness? You know, Satan comes to us and says, oh, you, you can commit that sin because after all, God's going to forgive you anyway, right? He's a forgiving God. You can do that. You, know, you, you can go and do what you want to do because God wants you to be happy. He, he wants you to, to be satisfied. 
And those things, in a way, have, have truth to them. But he takes God's words and he twists them for his own purposes. And he calls us to presume on God. And so here, in all three of these things, we see Satan's message, uh, Satan's methods. And again, we know that, that in some ways, they, they haven't changed a lot. They're the same ones that he used in the garden against Adam and Eve, the same ones that he uses against his people, uh, God's people throughout history. And it's the same ones that, that he uses today. And so on the one hand, we can be prepared, we can be ready. We have to be careful here, uh, that we don't take Satan lightly. He is an enemy, and he is a powerful enemy, and we need to know his ways, and we need to be looking for him, and we need to be ready. We need to be ready for when he comes. We need to put on, as J.C. Ryle says, the full armor of God. We need to be prepared to fight that good fight when Satan comes to us, and he surely will. He surely will jump on us. And so we see the work of the Holy Spirit. We've seen the work of Satan here. Thirdly and finally and quickly, we see the work of Christ. And what I want you to see is just how Jesus responds each time, the way he responds to the efforts of Satan here. And of course, he uses the scripture, right? He uses the sword of truth every single time. The first response is there in verse 4. He quotes from Deuteronomy 8 3. He says, Man shall not live by bread alone. And if we finish out that verse, Man shall not live by bread alone, but what? By, by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, the point that Jesus is making here is not that bread is unimportant. Surely he knows now, after 40 days of fasting, how important bread really is. But his point is that God's provision, God's word, whatever that word may be, is sufficient. It's sufficient to satisfy the needs of his people. It's sufficient to satisfy our deepest longings. You know, every temptation, whether it's a temptation to, to cheat on our taxes, to, to gossip, to, to worry in the face of all that we see out in the world, every temptation is an opportunity to do one of two things. To, to one, say, God, you're not enough. You're not sufficient for me. I know what you have said, but... Or it's an opportunity to say man does not live on approval, on pleasure, on gossip, on bread alone, but we live on the sufficiency of who God is. And so Jesus here, he teaches us to trust in that sure provision. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from God's mouth. The second temptation, again, it was one of power. And Jesus' response in verse 8 is you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. That's Deuteronomy 6.13. In other words, Jesus understands that all real power, all real glory belongs to God alone. And so rather than taking power for himself, he is willing to trust the Father's plan. Though he is God in the flesh, it makes you think of Philippians 2, right? Though he, he existed in the form of God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. And we see him do that here. He submits himself to the will of the Father, even if that means going to the cross. Even if that means having to suffer, to be humiliated before he can be exalted. And again, we, we want to do that too. We, we want to be sure that, that we are following God's plan. Our, our, our temptation is to rule over our own little kingdoms, 
to avoid hardship, to avoid trial, to, to do things our way. But none of those things will satisfy us, right? None of those things will give us the pleasure that they seemed to promise us. They only lead to misery. And so we learn to lean on the power that God, to look to the only real power, to God's power. Thirdly, the, the temptation was one of presumption, and you see the response of Jesus in verse 12. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, Jesus, uh, that's Deuteronomy 6.16. 6, Jesus will not presume on God's mercy. He will not presume on his goodness. Uh, and we shouldn't either. You know, it's that, that cry in the garden, oh, you'll surely not die, right? That's, that's what Satan said to Eve. You'll surely not die. Presuming on God's goodness. Let us simply take God at his word. And so, Jesus, he resists temptation, he leans on the Holy Spirit, and he leans on the word. And there's, there's so much that we could say here, but we're out of time. And so let me just conclude with, with two kind of points to kind of draw all this together, and it'll be quick. First, and this is an obvious one, but, but if we are going to resist temptation by using God's word, then the prerequisite of that is we have to know God's word, right? If we're going to do what, what Jesus has done here, we're going to resist temptation, then we have to know what God says to us. Again, we're reminded of Deuteronomy 6, right? He says, you have to know this law. You have to write it on your doorpost. You have to talk about it when you rise up, when you walk on the way. Everywhere you go, talk about the law. Write it as a frontlet on your forehead. Everywhere you go, know this law. Now, now God is telling us that not because he's conceited, not because he wants us to just have to submit to him in every way, even though we should do that. But he's telling us that because this is the only way we're going to live as he's called us to live. The real way, the right way, is to know and to live by the law. And so first, we have to know it. We have to know God's word. But secondly, and guys, this is, I can't emphasize this enough, because as Reformed people, we're very good at knowing the law. We're very good at knowing the word. But it's deeper than that. We also not, not simply know God's law, not, not simply know his word, but we also have to know him. We have to know his heart. We have to know who he is if we are ever going to face temptation. We have to know his goodness. We have to know his kindness if we're going to trust in his provision. We have to know his power, his strength, if we're going to resist to take power for ourselves. We have to know that, that he has said these things and that he is just and holy and that he doesn't mess around about his word if we're not going to presume on what he has said to us, right? We have to know not simply what he has said, but we have to know him. We have to know who he is, and we especially have to know his son. We have to know Jesus, this one who resisted Satan at the beginning and this one who resisted him to the very end. Again, Luke tells us there in verse 13 that after all of this was over, the devil ended every temptation and he departed from him until the opportune time, right? It wasn't over. He was going to come back and we know that he did. There at the end, he brings all of his forces to bear at the cross. But even there, Jesus is faithful. He's faithful to the Father, and he's faithful to those he died to save. And so the question again, as always, is, is do we know him? Do we know the one 
who is the, the spotless lamb, who, whose spotless record now belongs to us if we, if we trust in him by faith. You know, all of us, the, the truth is, is all of us struggle with temptation. That's the, that's the joy of that 1 Corinthians 10 passage, right? That, that temptation is not unique to any of us. It's, it's what comes to every man. And so your struggle, if you're struggling with temptation, you're not alone in that. You know, you're not by yourself. That's a comfort. But the truth is, is we all struggle with temptation. We all struggle with sin. And so are we resting in the one who defeated it all? Are we resting in the one who has won this cosmic battle for our very souls? Let's pray together. Father, as we think about those things, as we think about what Jesus has done for us there, not only in the wilderness, but throughout his life, and especially at the end of his life, in the garden, at the cross, Lord, it would have been easy at any moment for him to say, I'm not going to do this, to, to stop to, to give in to the, to the temptations that, that Satan was giving him to take power into his own hands. He surely had that power to, to question your sure provision, to presume on your goodness. Father, what a joy it is to know that for us, for, because of his great love, he didn't do that. He, he stayed on the cross. He was obedient even to the point of death so that he might bring us salvation, this spotless lamb of God. He might give us his perfect spotless record. It might be contributed to our account. And so, Lord, we pray that, that we would remember what he has done for us as we read this passage, that we would fall down in worship. Uh, but also, Father, we pray uh, that you would teach us to live as Jesus did. Lord, we, we are tempted in every way. Uh, Lord, we are tempted in almost every moment of our lives to take matters into our own hands, to do things our way. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us strength by the power of your Spirit to walk in the way that you have called us to. Lord, help us to be people that are, that are people of your Word. Uh, but, Lord, more than that, we pray that you would show us your heart, that you would show us your kindness, that you would show us your goodness that you would show us the truth of, of who you are so that when that temptation comes, we can look and say, no, God is better. God is more holy. God is more righteous. God is more powerful. He is more beautiful than any of this temptation, than any of this sin. And so we are going to lean on him and on him alone. Lord, help us to do that. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our closing hymn uh, is hymn number...